Have you ever wondered what personality traits are connected with a dog's floppy ears? Or why they have bumpy bits along their lips? Oh yeah, that's a good one. Today, we are talking dog anatomy. Everything you've ever wanted to know about your dog's body, but didn't know who to ask or know to ask. Hello, I'm James Jacobson in Maui, Hawaii. And I'm Claire Mansell in London, England. Welcome to Dog Edition. Where voices from around the world consider all things dog. Dog Edition is the first show designed for you to listen to while you walk your dogs. Today's episode is all about dog anatomy. We will be taking a tour of your dog from nose to tail. If you've ever wondered, why does my dog have extra claws that don't touch the ground? Or why sometimes my dog needs to have their anal glands expressed? Oh, wonder no more. So if you love dogs as much as we do, anal glands and all, (laughs) pause what you're doing, leash up your pup, and let's go for a walk. Because we've got a lot to talk about on today's episode of Dog Edition. Hey, Claire, did you ever see the Body Wars exhibit at Epcot Center where you went deeply inside of a body and you were real small and you could see things from the perspective of a cell? That sounds very cool, but I didn't. But it does sound a lot like that really cult 1980s sci-fi movie, Inner Space, where they shrunk down, I think it was one or two people, and they injected them into another person and they travelled all the way through the body, seeing the different bits. Lieutenant Pendleton is about to be miniaturised, placed into this needle, and then injected into this rabbit. Rock and roll. Sometimes perspective is really what matters. In fact, that is what we are doing on today's show. We are going on a little journey, a journey through the body of a dog. Starting off on our journey through our dogs, our first stop is their noses. As we all know, dogs have pretty amazing noses. But do you know exactly why? Well, we went to dog parks around the world to ask you what you know about your dog's nose. Question one, why do dogs have wet noses? If I had to guess why dogs' noses are wet, it's so that they could smell better, I think. But I'm not sure. I don't know. My guess would be that it's uh, temperature regulation. Okay, some good guesses there. Mm -hmm. Question two. Have you ever heard of the Jacobson organ? Nope. I haven't ever heard of the Jacobson organ. Oh, Jim, they haven't heard of that very essential organ, Mm, which is sort of named after you, which is (laughs) fair enough because it is a little bit obscure. And to be fair, your dog doesn't normally come with an instruction manual that names all the parts. No, wouldn't that be great if if you got an instruction manual like... The the cautions and everything and all the parts and how they all worked. Hey, keep that idea quiet. We could publish that. (laughs) Ooh, maybe next in the show notes? No, probably not in today's show notes, but that would be a great idea. So all these things are actually interconnected. A dog's sense of smell and their wet nose and temperature regulation. And yes, the Jacobson organ. Let's have Dr. Maggie Brown-Burry, who is a veterinarian and a representative of the Canadian Veterinary Medical Association, walk us through some of this. We'll start with the question, 
Why do dogs have wet noses? It's actually pretty simple. The nose secretes mucus. That's what it does. And the dog licks its nose. And that's why it's wet. And a wet nose is good if you're a dog because... The key to sort of understanding why the nose is wet is scent particles stick better to wet surfaces. And dogs have a remarkable sense of smell. And a dog is going to sort of instinctively know that keeping their nose wet is going to help them process the world around them. So they lick their nose to enhance its performance. That's amazing. Do you think that works with me? If I, if I lick my nose, will it enhance my performance? <laughs> Can you do it? That's the thing. Now we're on video. So this is for those of you who are listening. You should watch the YouTube. She is trying, but she can't do it. Again, one of the miracle things of dogs. I dated a girl once who could lick her nose, but that's a, that's a whole, oh. whole other thing we won't talk about. So anyway, uh, we'll move on. Mucus and licking aren't the only way that dogs keep their noses wet. Some of it happens naturally. If you think of a, a dog like going around and sniffing the ground, the ground and the grass and all of that is moist. Not to mention, obviously, they get wet noses when they take water from their bowls, mm. too, I would imagine. And the texture of their noses, I guess, also comes into play. Yes, that cobbly skin nose makes all the difference. And yes, that nose covering is technically skin. There's what's called mucocutaneous junction, which is when you go from regular dry skin to a mucus-producing skin. Which, for the record, is something that we as humans have as well. Our noses are made of normal skin, which seamlessly transitions into the mucus-producing wet skin inside of our nostrils. But in dogs? Dogs just have this sort of highly developed extra step when they go from regular skin to that sort of pebbly nose skin to the straight-up mucus layer that's inside their nares or nostrils. And so that that leathery cobbly stone bit isn't really like oozing mucus in sort of a really super appreciable way, but it is able to stay wet better than regular skin will and it functions differently. So just so I'm clear, in dogs, the mucus is still produced inside the nostrils, right? That's right, just like in humans. But in dogs, that mucus just does a better job of getting from inside the nose outside. You know, there's always been this sort of theory that when a dog has a dry nose, that it's a sign that the dog is sick or something's wrong with it. And now that I'm hearing this, that is making some sort of sense because it's not working as it should. Well, that's what I've heard as well, but that is not always the case. While a persistently dry nose could indicate a bigger problem like a disease or an infection or something like that, having a dry nose sometimes isn't always a reason for concern. Let's hear from Dr. Beth Turner. She is a veterinarian and a media representative for PreventativeVet.com. If your dog's nose is periodically dry, it's not the end of the world. You know, it can happen. In some cases, just like we can get sunburn, if they get sunburnt on their nose, it can dry out. Or even more commonly, if your dog has been sleeping for a while, just woke up from a nap, his nose might be dry. Breed comes into play here too. Brachycephalic, a.k.a. mush-nosed dogs, you know, where the dogs have their nose pushed in like pugs and bulldogs, they tend to have drier noses because their tongues don't come up as high, just like yours, Claire. <laughs> and often they have drier tongues than other dogs. And here's why. So they're sitting there 
like this so much that their tongue is dry. Even they lick their nose, they're not moisturizing it. Ray, who is our producer here at DPN, who put this show together and did all of this research, has a pug. And Ray wanted to mention that his pug, Miko's nose, is usually on the drier side. But nonetheless, Miko is a perfectly healthy boy. And I understand that is actually Miko's real bark. Not a sound effect. That is Miko saying yes. <laughs> now, one of our friends back in the dog parks seemed to think that dogs have wet noses as a form of temperature regulation. And that does seem to make sense. Is that true? Yes, it is true. Dogs' noses are an exceptional multi-purpose device. It does help them stay cool because dogs don't sweat. They don't have sweat glands. They regulate body temperature with evaporative heat loss through panting. And the nose and the, and the nasal cavities are a part of that process. Mm, that is very cool. Okay. So as we prepare to leave the wet nostrils. No, it's no, frank. no, don't make me leave the nostrils. What's next? It's very, it's very damp in here. <laughs> what is our next stop along the tour of the dog anatomy? Is it somewhere furry? are not going too far, our next stop is the Jacobson organ, which is technically not part of the dog's nose, but it is part of a dog's sense of smell. Or, if we want to use technical terminology, it is part of the olfactory system. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't be able to bypass the Jacobson organ. Uh, so even though I said earlier I knew what the Jacobson organ was, I do need you to remind me exactly its purpose. Well, I am not a veterinarian, so we'll leave that to a vet. Here is Beth to explain. So that is a special organ that's located in the nasal cavity. and actually has an opening right behind those front teeth. Those are the incisors. And it is a secondary olfactory system for the dog. Its main purpose is to help other dogs identify when another dog is in heat or ready to breed. But it also works with the regular sense of smell by enhancing smells so it makes them be able to smell more. So when dogs are suspecting another dog or trying to find a dog in heat, they'll even lift their lip, you know, curl it up, they'll pant, they'll open their mouth so that that sense is more enhanced. So if you've ever wanted to look at a Jacobson organ, and I know you have, we will have a link in today's show notes with some more information about where to find it on your dog. So, Jim, that whole thing about the lip curling up and the opening of the mouth mm -hmm. in order to smell better and everything, that is fascinating. And it also brought to mind this mental image of horses do that. Mm -hmm. Is that the same thing? Well, actually, you're right. It is. The Jacobson organ is not unique to dogs. Many mammals like cats and cows and pigs and horses have it. And so do some reptiles, even lizards and snakes. As it turns out, we humans do not have an active Jacobson organ, but there is some evidence that shows that we may have traces of it from our evolutionary descent, but we no longer have it. Can I just say I really think that's a good thing because dating would be horrific if people were curling up the lip and sniffing to see if you were ripe. Well, I thought Brits are known for their stiff upper lip. Oh, maybe that's where it comes from. So, Claire, let's continue this tour of our dogs. We could go any direction. We could go up or down or back or right. But let's go someplace very nearby, the Whiskers. 
Yeah, whiskers. Not the first thing you think about when you think about dogs. We tend to associate them with cats, but dogs do have them. They do indeed, just like cats. Well, we went to the dog park to find out what people thought about those whiskers. I think dogs have whiskers as a sense to help guide them and feel around their surroundings. Dogs have whiskers so that they could sense in the dark if they're bumping into something. Yeah, I would have said something along those lines. I always thought it was so they could judge gaps when they walk through them. Well, let's find out from an expert. Here is Beth. Now, in cats, they're obviously they're more luscious and beautiful, and that's why people pay attention to them more. Dogs are a little bit more blunted on the muzzle than they have them on the eye as well. But like their muzzle, think about it. When they're hunting, when they're going around a food bowl, their lips are touched first. They go deep within the skin, but they have a very intensive nerve system and nerve receptors, basically. And that stimulates. So they know, okay, I'm too close to something. Something's not right. So again, it allows them to feel with their face, know the edges and margins. So we were basically right. Mm -hmm. We were right. To be fair, I feel like that was an easy one and I don't want to take too much credit here. Is there anything else we should know about whiskers? The most interesting thing about whiskers is what we've already said. Basically, no. We we can move on of our tour of the dog. And let's go to a, another interesting spot, the ears. Now, this next bit will not apply to all dogs, but something that we were curious about is why do some dogs have floppy ears while others don't? That's a really good question. Well, we went to dog parks to ask people what they thought about their dog's ears and what a floppy ear meant. Maybe they're extra sensitive to sound. Maybe they were bred to be that way because it's cuter. I think dogs have floppy ears to protect the insides of their ears. So some really interesting differing ideas there. And I like the last one that somebody said about, was it so that it protects the inside of their ears, which sort of sounds logical. Is any of that correct? Well, not exactly. It does have something to do with selective breeding, but not exactly the way our dog park guest suggested. Here is Dr. Maggie. So I don't know if people are going for cute or if it was just because when you are breeding animals, you can't pick just one thing. You can't say like, I want all only black dogs and ignore the rest of the dog because you are going to inadvertently be picking for other things. And sometimes these things are linked to each other. So it could have been that they just were not paying attention to the ears, but the other things that they were picking led towards these floppy ears. That would be the simple version. So what we're saying is there's no real evidence that floppy ears were a trait that breeders were specifically looking for, but it sort of happened by accident. They kind of evolved on their own and came as part of the package with something else. Basically, yeah. We do know that some genes are linked to others, like genes for blonde hair and blue eyes in humans. If you have one, you're usually going to get the other. And as it turns out, floppy ears are common genetics among a lot of domesticated species. However, what is striking is that there is a likely link between floppy ears and passive personalities. Here's Dr. Maggie again. 
I remember when I was in university, we read a study about selecting fur-bearing foxes. So these were foxes that were kept in a farm for like the fur trade. And they were selecting foxes for the breeding program based on their personality and their temperament. Like they were picking the less aggressive foxes. And after a few generations, they started to kind of look like beagles. That's quite an amazing image and quite fascinating. I'm thinking about all the different dog breeds now and mentally flicking through whether they have upright ears or droopy ears. This is really interesting. There were breeders who were looking for more passive temperaments and for whatever reason, that personality had some genetic link with floppy ears. And so over time, they got the passive personalities and the floppy ears in with the deal. Exactly. In fact, we are doing an episode coming up, Claire, that you're producing about breeders and dogs. But we're going to take a quick break right here. And when we come back, we will be continuing our inside tour of your dog. We'll be right back. And now, a message from your dog. Every day with you is like a day at the beach. And I want as many beach days as possible. I want to run and sniff and find a good stick to carry. I want to roll in the grass and warm my belly in the sun. I want to walk with you, run with you, sleep with you, eat with you. And when I eat with you, I want Ever Pup. The green, grassy, beef liver spiked smell wakes my senses. You may not realize this, but it tastes like homemade gravy, especially when you wet it. It infuses any food you give me with health and life and vibrancy. I can feel it. Everpup traveling to every cell in my body, nourishing each one. Does it roll back time? Of course not. Not really. But it helps me feel like I'm on top of the world. I'm so glad you're giving it to me every day. Because every day I'm so glad to be with you. I'm so grateful to be your dog. And for the Everpup you give me. So now that you know what your dog wants, get Everpup, the ultimate dog supplement. Everpup is available in select pet shops and on Amazon. But to get the best price possible, join the Everpup Club at everpupclub.com, where you'll get your first jar for just $8 with free shipping anywhere in the U.S. Go to everpupclub.com and use the discount code DPN. That is everpupclub.com. Everpup every day. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back to Dog Edition. It is time for us to continue our tour 
of the dog. Let's head a little downward and briefly stop at our dog's lips. So when I learned that we were recording this episode about dog anatomy, I started examining Maple's body a little more closely, just with my eyes, Mm -hmm. I have to say. And the thing that fascinated me were... The bit at the back of the lips, you know? Yeah, yeah, they're they're bumpy, aren't they? Yeah, it's like um, it's like a mountain range or like at the edge of a saw. That's very astute, actually, Claire. You hit on something exactly right because the common terminology for that part is a serrated lip. Wow. Okay, serrated lips. Claire, what do you think a serrated lip is for? I I literally have no idea. I literally just think they're. Almost a bit like the floppy ears. They're just some sort of weird genetic thing that popped out when we were trying to get something else and they don't have a use. But maybe I'll be surprised. Well, we went out to dog parks to find out what other people thought. I think it's just like stretched skin kind of. Oh, I don't know. It helps with the uh, chewing of the food. I don't think either of those people sounded very convinced. I I think they have as (laughs) much of a clue as I do. (laughs) So just like a dog's wet nose serves a lot of different functions, those serrated lips are probably doing more than one thing. But there's still a lot of research, still research to be done on our dogs to get to the bottom of this question definitively. Here is Dr. Beth. Some belief is that it helps in tasting of food to make it taste better because there's more uh, taste buds potentially in there. It also helps them when they're biting, less likely to bite their lips as they're chewing and such. Wow, that makes some sense. I can see how those bumps let the lips kind of fall away from the teeth. Experts do have more ideas about those lips and what they're doing and why they developed in the first place. Here's Maggie to explain. There's one theory that it helps with forming like the suction when they're suckling as a newborn and it just doesn't go away. The other theory, the one that I think makes sort of kind of the most sense is basically that it increases the surface area, which when you think about ourselves versus dogs, we have a lot more in the way of cheek. And so we can manipulate our mouths a little bit more than a dog can. Dogs have very little cheek and mostly just an opening. So having that increased surface area allows them to open their lips a bit wider around something without having to like have all of that cheek and facial muscle to do it. It's probably some combination of all of those things, but we will continue to do the research and you can start with looking at Maple's lips. (laughs) So Jim, where are we off to next? So I am glad you asked. We are going to take a ride down the brachial artery to our dog's wrist. Do you actually call them wrists on a dog? Mm, Not, if you want to be technical, but I am not a veterinarian. That's why we have them on the show. The part of a dog that would be equivalent to our human wrist is called the carpus. Thank you, Producer Ray. It is a complex set of joints at the end of the front limbs (laughs) that connect to their paws. If you were to look at the back of your dog's carpi, yes, that is the plural of carpus, you will find something very interesting there. There is something interesting there. There is a 
pad that doesn't touch the floor. And I've always wondered what that is about. Mm. Well, unsurprisingly, that is named the carpal pad. So as everyone listening to this podcast knows, on the bottom of your dog's paw, there are five pads. There's that heart-shaped pad in the center to remind us that we love our dogs. It's kind of like their palm. And then there are those pads on the bottom of each toe. Okay, so those ones are all quite logical, but what is the one that's further up the leg for? Well, you're not alone wondering what that is. Our friends at the dog park weren't entirely sure either. I think it's an evolutionary thing. Like, it used to be a finger, then they don't have anymore. But it also could be, like, if they were jumping down off something and then that thing touches the ground, they know that they can't let their little hands go any further. I have no idea why there's a pad on their wrist that never touches the ground. So let's hear from a professional or two. Here are the two veterinarians to tell us what those pads are all about. It's basically like a bumper. Like, you know how like old-fashioned roller skates had that little like rubber thingy that if you moved your foot the right way, it caught, acted as a brake? That is what the carpal pad is. It helps them when they're going down slopes. You know, it's kind of like having a better pair of shoes. You know, it helps with the sudden turn, a little bit of a break. So it has a benefit of, of in their general movement. Because when you watch dogs run, yeah, they're on their toes. But when they're starting to stop, they change the angulation of their legs and such. So that adds as a cushion and a break, essentially. I love that analogy of the roller skates with the bumper because I had some of those in the 1980s and I could picture that beautifully. <laughs> Me too. That makes perfect sense. Well, let's move on. Not far beneath the carpal pad, there is something else that is pretty interesting about our dog's anatomy. They have an extra claw there, the dew claw. It doesn't touch the ground, just like the carpal pad. And also like the carpal pad, it's not totally obvious what it does. True, in fact, it is the genesis of why we did this episode. When we went to the dog park to find out what people thought about why there was a dew claw, we got some interesting answers. I feel like maybe the dew claw doesn't ever touch the ground because it's an evolutionary trait that helped dogs pick apart food when they were closer to wolves. I don't know. I would probably just say it's for balance. Balance seems a good idea. I'm also going to throw in there that maybe that was where their thumb used to be, you know, before evolution robbed them of the opposable mm -hmm. thumb that would allow them to do all the things like opening cans of dog food, if only they could. Well, that is a clever idea. I'm not sure if that's true, but uh, one of our veterinarians knows for sure. Here is Dr. Beth. The original early ancestors were actually a cat-like creature. I think it was called myaxis. And they climb trees. So those five digits are helpful to climb trees. Well, with evolution and time, those creatures became land-dwelling or, you know, runners. And so as dogs developed, they went from being plantar-grade-like people to being what you call digigrade. I'm in shock that our dogs are descended from a cat-like creature. This is a whole other episode here. <laughs> but the crux of this is I was basically on the right lines with this evolution and it being a redundant thing. Basically, but let's not give the impression that the Dewclaw does nothing. As it turns out, that Dewclaw does have a function, but the function is sort of under the radar. 
Here's Dr. Maggie. It's not a vestigial organ. It is a functioning part of the front foot, especially. So it actually has like tendons attached to it, and it is an important part of motion. And I think the fallacy people fall into is they look at a dog standing and see the parts of the foot that aren't touching the ground when it's standing and think, well, those parts aren't useful. But if you were to sort of record a dog running and high speeds, different terrains, that dew claw will hit the ground. And it is important for stabilizing the carpus or the wrist when they are doing quick turns or if they're on slopes uh, or difficult terrain. That's fascinating. I'm going to be keeping a close eye on Maple when we next go for a run. Is there anything else we should know about dew claws, Jim? There is. Most dogs have dew claws just on the front legs, but there are some dogs who have a dew claw on their hind legs as well. And those tend to be really big dogs, dogs like St. Bernard's or Pyrenees Mountain Dogs. In the case of those back dew claws, those actually are vestigial organs. They don't support anything. They don't support motion or balance. They are just a remnant of evolution. With the hind dew claws, those are those ones where there's no bone attaching it. It's just attached by skin. A lot of dog owners will remove those back dew claws, basically because they're not attached to bones and they have no tendons. It's not a big deal, but there are a lot more differing opinions about the ethics of removing front dew claws. Yeah, that sounds like a discussion for another episode. I agree. We are almost done with our tour of our dog's body, nose to tail. But before we hit the tail, we have one last stop to make. Does this mean that we are going to be talking about um, dogs' butts? Butts. Butts it is, yes. The moment we have all been waiting for. The part of our dog's butts that we're going to talk about. The one that we all know, love, and love the aroma of. Their anal glands. For this one, let's jump into what Maggie and Beth have to say. So if you pick up your little dog's tail, their anus, rectal opening, on either side, there are these two sacs. They're called anal glands. And you almost picture like a balloon. You know how a balloon is shaped if you lay it out? It has, that's anal sac. So when a dog goes to the bathroom, the fluid that's in there expresses out. But what sometimes can happen is they can get clogged or infected and the dog can't express them. But also if a dog is overweight, they can't express them well. If the dog has arthritis, they can't hold the squat long enough. If they have diarrhea, there's so many different reasons why they can't express them. So they go to the vet to express them. The term to express is so elegant sounding. But to be clear, there is nothing elegant about expressing anal glands. Basically, you're manually going in with a glove and you're almost like milking it out to release the substance that's in there. And that is why we pay veterinarians and vet techs a lot of money to perform that service so we don't have to. I'm very glad that's something I don't have to do on a regular basis. So to restate it, anal glands are not our dog's anus. They don't actually release poop. They release a special fluid that coats the poop. And if I have this right, unlike humans, dogs actually like smelling this fluid. It's a kind of way that they talk to each other. You got it. 
to each species their own. Maybe we don't love everything about all dogs, huh? Yeah, well, Jim, I think we've made it to the end of our tour, haven't we? All that's left now is the tail. Yes, we have, Claire. I think of all the body parts, maybe aside from the whiskers, this is the one that is the most obvious or at least the best known. Tails help dogs balance. And as we learned on our first Dog Miss Debunked episode a few months back, it allows them to communicate and express different emotions. And we'll put a link to that episode in the show notes. Yeah, the myth that we were debunking in that episode was that dogs don't only wag their tails when they're happy. But there is one thing that we didn't cover in that last episode, which you should know about dogs' tails. To tell us about that, here's Dr. Maggie. So when we have these breeds where they have that really corkscrewy tail, it does reduce one of their ways of communicating. Like a bulldog or a Boston Terrier, some of them, they are, they're cork, corkscrewed. Like the bones are actually bent and malshapen, which means that they can't raise their tail or wag their tail in quite the same way. And it's just something that people should keep in mind when they're thinking about like what kind of dog do they want, especially if you're in a multiple dog household, you need those dogs in your household to be able to communicate with each other. And so selecting a dog who's had his communication systems kind of dampened can sometimes cause interdog issues because their communication breakdowns. And that is a fitting way to end this communication, our tour of a dog from the top to the tail. That's all the time we have for today. I want to thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Dog Edition. And don't forget everything we mentioned in terms of extra episodes and the Jacobson organ and all that kind of stuff is in our show notes. And don't forget as well to follow along to Dog Edition in your favourite podcast app. And it's always good to let a fellow dog lover know about our show. I'm Claire Mansell. And I'm James Jacobson. On behalf of all of us here at Dog Podcast Network, I'd like to wish you and your dog a very warm aloha. Is artificial intelligence going to change veterinary medicine? Well, it already has. Right now, on Dog Cancer Answers, we're speaking with Dr. Kelly Deal of Morris Animal Foundation about how AI is impacting veterinary research and the practice of medicine itself. That's on Dog Cancer Answers. Get it wherever you get your podcasts or at dogcancer.com slash podcast. <laughs>